announces a new strategy of soft defence. How long will French troops be in Mali? And Argentina's foreign minister comes to London, rejects a meeting with William Hague, but says the Falklands will be Argentine within 20 years. I believe in dialogue, and I believe that sooner rather than later, the whole world recognise the rights of Argentina to the Malvinas. The government has announced a £6 million international soft defence strategy to safeguard its interests in Burma, Somalia, South Sudan and Libya. The international defence engagement strategy sets out how all defence activities short of combat operations will focus efforts on those countries which are considered most important to British national interests. Some examples of the new strategy in practice are establishing a new defence attaché and defence section in the embassy in Burma, closer work with Libya including advanced to train its military, plans to open a new defence section in the new British embassy in Mogadishu in Somalia and recently opening a defence section in Juba in South Sudan. BFBS's defence analyst Christopher Lee is here. Hello Christopher. What do you make of this? Go back to 2010 when the defence review happened and most people had to concentrate on money and equipment and numbers of people that were going to be sacked. Alongside it was published um, something which is called the National Security Strategy. And from that was born this document. And basically it says this. Um, you get into four areas of what you might call asymmetric warfare. But the point is you don't do Iraq anymore, you don't do Afghanistan anymore unless there are exceptional circumstances. What you do... You strengthen your defence contacts with other countries. You find out, for example, how you can help them, how you can have a common strategy, places where you've got some history with them. And also, uh, you sell them equipment if necessary. And that's what it's all about. Defence diplomacy, so when you send an attaché, which could probably be a a colonel sort of uh, level. My father was a defence attaché. He was a major in a junior post. And so, but you might be sort of a major general, say, in Washington. And so you build up that side of uh, your relationships with the military in the country you're living. Uh, and that becomes very important because if you've got something like Mali suddenly happens or you want to put a reconnaissance operation into Senegal, as we've just done, you actually know the people you're talking to. So it's about building up intelligence contacts and perhaps preventing failing states from failing. Uh, yes, you're, you're getting to know what's going on. I mean, for example, I remember the uh, defence attaché's wives were all given uh, small uh, cameras. And so uh, what you go and you take a happy family snap, but you made sure that you were standing outside the dockyard <laughs> gate so you could see the aerials on the ships and therefore you would know what was going on there. There's that intelligence gathering side of it, but most important of all, you know who the people are. So you, you can actually report back in intelligence, the Defence Intelligence Agency, say in the United Kingdom, in MOD, and say there's a bit of, bit of something going on, let's say, in a particular country. I was talking last night to this particular general... He says the army will stand clear. It's those sort of extremes we're talking about. This strategy also says it's going to look at how non-operational defence assets and activities in future will be allocated to better contribute <coughs> to wider governmental objectives and goals in the future. Is, it, is that the same thing as it what is, you just told me? It is the same thing. I mean, 
what we're trying to, I think what's, what's happening here, don't forget this is, is a strategy. Is it, is it extending uh, influence you, on the cheap? No, no. Well, in fact, I think the bill for the whole thing will be about six millions, which is, you know, that is cheap. But the point is you don't need too many people. So you put in a defence section, for example, which may be five, uh, five service people. Um, you have to remember the title. It's the defence engagement strategy. In other words, how you engage with countries which um, perhaps at the moment we haven't looked at. If you think, I mean, you were talking about, for example, sending stuff into the new embassy in Mogadishu in Somalia. The conditions in Somalia for the past 20 years have been the wrong conditions to send in a military attaché and five guys. Uh, you send people to Libya. This is a new country as far as we're concerned now. But where was the school you were talking about? The language school was in Libya. And that's very important. So you've got people going on a two-way street, learning language, learning how to deal with people, learning customs, etc. Look at southern Sudan. Southern Sudan was a no-go area uh, before. And now it is a place where you can send a defence uh, uh, attachment. And that's particularly important. If you can send them down to Juba, then you can send them to most places. Christopher, stay with us. So, France is at war in Africa. This week, the country's defence minister conceded it was at the outset of a real war in Mali, where its soldiers had been in direct combat with Islamist militants forced out of key cities they'd once held. Real war or not, the French have also announced their intention to start drawing down their troops at the beginning of next month, and elections are apparently expected in July. Dr Bernie Seb lectures on Franco-African relations at the University of Birmingham, the only course on the subject in the UK. Yes, the uh, candidate François Hollande uh, stated very clearly that he wanted to put an end to the insistuous relationship between France and its former African colonies, which was very much represented by a tendency to have direct uh, personal relationships between heads of state instead of going through the traditional diplomatic channels. And what François Hollande wanted to do was to have a much more normal relationship, fully emancipated and between equals relationship between the, the African countries and France. And so Mali had what used to be part of French West Africa between the late 19th century when it was conquered by troops coming mostly from Senegal and it remained part of the French African uh, ensemble throughout the, the first half of the 20th century until it was granted independence in 1960. And following that, France has remained an important economic, political and cultural partner of the country since then. And is it that about the past that made François Hollande change his mind that he simply had to intervene in the case of Mali? Yes, because François Hollande has been pushing very hard in order to make sure that there was a primarily an African solution which would be found to the problem which the country had been facing since the summer, spring-summer of 2012. And he was adamant that France was to be on the back seat as the former colonial power. But because the African countries which were involved potentially in the international force, which the purpose of which was to prevent the Republic of Mali from falling prey to the Islamist groups which had seized the northern half of the country, and because these groups decided to attack in early January the army, the Malian army, in order to seize Bamako 
and turn the whole of the country into an Islamic Emirate, which was their ultimate group, something was necessary. And because no African country was willing to put the troops and the logistics in order to stop this assault against Bamako and the Republic of Mali on time, and obviously it would be too late to wait until September, then the French had to step in, but quite reluctantly. To what extent, as some people have said, is France actually just obliged to sort out a problem it effectively created in the first place? Yes, this is definitely a point of view which has some strength, in particular because all the borders in the area and within French West Africa did not make sense from the perspective of the ethnic makeup of these countries because it always brings together the northern half, which is more uh, traditionally uh, nomadic and also with light-skinned populations as opposed to the south, which is much more of the tropical rainforest or the savannah, and with uh, darker uh, populations. And these countries are very heterogeneous, and as a result it makes it very difficult, of course, to ensure that there is a national feeling which is widely spread, especially in the northern territories, which in the case of Mali were uh, actually rose against the central government very early, as early as 1963 and 4, so less than half a decade after the country had gained independence. And since then we have witnessed four uprisings in northern Mali, so it is definitely a problem linked to the colonial division which has prevailed before independence. But now we also have to recognize that because the Organization of African Unity decided in 1964 that colonial borders could not be revised, it was also the decision of African states in general to cope with them and their consequences. That was Dr. Bernie Seb from the University of Birmingham. Um, Christopher, the drawdown by the French in March is likely to be a decisive period in Mali, but a meeting going on right now in Brussels will have far-reaching consequences. Tell us about it. Yeah, OK. The, the French are in there, and they brought in people like the brilliant Chad soldiers. The Chadians are the key when the French have gone to this whole thing. And then other countries will come in from the African Union, from the old ECOWAS uh, soldiers. But who's going to pay for them? Who's actually going to get them there? That's what's going on in Brussels at the moment. You've got the United Nations meeting, the EU meeting, you've got the African Union meeting, and crucially, you've got the World Bank. In other words, what money in, you might get over the fact that the biggest problem in that whole area is rich countries and poor people. Let's talk briefly about Tunisia, where it's all going wrong. The country where the Arab Spring started is facing its worst crisis after the assassination of a leading secular politician, prompting the Prime Minister to offer to dissolve Parliament and form a unity government. Christopher, um, who killed Shokri Belaid, and why would it cause such a crisis? Uh, we don't know who killed him yet, but Shokri uh, Belaid was extraordinarily important. Uh, uni- unified Democrat Nationalists um, Party. And they were the people who fundamentally said, you've got an Islamic government, Islamist government rather, you mustn't have that. People are going to go to the streets. It could be a second revolution. Uh, Watch a place called... A second revolution? You think so, really? There could be. Watch a place called Gapsar. And Gapsar, which is in central Tunisia, could be the key to the whole idea that the government is going to not necessarily fall but have to make enormous concessions. The troops will be out in Gapsar shortly because the people in Gapsar are the real revolutionaries. Sit 
Rep with Kate Chabot. Still to come, Argentina's foreign minister wants to talk about the Falklands, but not to William Hague or anyone else who lives there. And we go to the slopes in Maribel for winter sports military style. BFBS Zip Rep. The army has announced it's keeping the vehicles bought for Afghanistan even once Britain's role there is over. The new commander land forces has confirmed that mastiffs, jackals, huskies and panthers are all here to stay. Lieutenant General Edwin Bradshaw made the announcement to an industry audience at the International Armoured Vehicles Trade Fair in Farnborough this week. Afterwards, Will Inglis asked him how the vehicles bought as urgent operational requirements would fit into the army's future. Yeah, well, as I said in my in my conference speech, uh, we now have the best range of vehicles that we've seen for a generation. Our people are properly mounted and properly protected, uh, and they appreciate uh, the work that's been put into delivering uh, this fleet of vehicles. It's pretty vital that we recover them efficiently, uh, efficiently from Afghanistan and we get them integrated into our core fleet for future contingencies, and we shall have to find the funding to do that. So you mentioned the money there. Is this all costed then? Well, we're, uh, we're looking at the implications of that now. Uh, clearly, we've uh, been allocated $5.4 billion for the future equipment programme, so that is now secure. Um, we look forward to developing uh, the Scout, uh, the utility vehicle, uh, improving Warrior and Challenger, those are all going to be the future capabilities. But the um, urgent operational requirement fleet are the, are the vehicles to bridge the gap and deal with the immediate contingencies. Is there a risk that running on some of these urgent operational requirement vehicles could prevent proper longer-term investment in something like the, the planned utility vehicle? Well, we've got to be realistic. Uh, you know, we've got to uh, balance things properly within our resources. But vehicles like Mastiff uh, are extremely well protected. They've served us incredibly well in theatre. Uh, there are many people uh, alive today uh, who wouldn't have been in a different sort of vehicle. Uh, and uh, they've got utility for the future in all sorts of places. And it's sensible that we uh, hang on to those vehicles until they're replaced in a proper programme. That was Lieutenant General Adrian Bradshaw, the new commander, Land Forces. Well, someone else looking at new vehicles at the trade fair was Afghanistan's Chief of the General Staff, General Sher Mohammed Karimi. Will asked him if he was aspiring to replace the ubiquitous pickup truck with something tougher. The enemy lately is using mines very extensively. So against those mines, you have to have some kind of protection. And the protected mobility is one of the challenges that we have. Of course, the ANA, uh, uh, or as any other army, would like to have uh, tanks, APCs, and, and various uh, uh, equipment uh, to enhance the capability of the army. In other words, we will need enablers, uh, whether it's artillery in the logistic area, in the air force, uh, firepower, whatever. Uh, we are working to that end, and the international community is helping, particularly the U.S., who we appreciate that, and... Uh, Hopefully, by the time ISAF NATO leaves this country, ANA will be fully capable uh, and, uh, of uh, doing its mission to, to protect the country, to protect the people, and uh, help the police in their missions. Of course, new vehicles will bring with them a training burden. Now, I know that on this trip you've been spending time with the UK forces as they train to deploy to Afghanistan. 
Are you envious of that sheer level of training? Well, you see, uh, the uh, envious, you could be envious for anything, you know, even at home with somebody. Uh, uh, but the question is, I mean, they have not just uh, learned and acquired all the things overnight. They've worked for many, many years. Uh, so I'm, uh, you know, happy to have such friends like the British or the Americans or the other NATO nations helping my army. And I'm sure one day we'll have a, a well-trained army, uh, if not 100% to that standard, close to it. Uh, you see one of the problems in the last 30 years of uh, civil war, we have lost uh, the opportunity for young people to go to school and the, uh, the, the literacy is another threat within the country, within the army. So the more you have educated people, the better they will have training, the better they will understand and use the equipment. So we will be working for that end. It will take us longer, uh, but we are resilient and we are uh, committed to train our army uh, to the uh, uh, required standard. Just finally, to, to come back to equipment, uh, you just have to look out over the airfield at Kandahar or Bagram and see the tens of billions of dollars worth of uh, unmanned systems, other intelligence assets on the ground there, as well as, of course, as, as fast jets. With the best will in the world, you're, you're never going to have anything like that capability. Will you still be able to win without that support? You see, uh, we are winning because uh, uh, our cause is legitimate. We are uh, protecting our own people. We are protecting our country. We are defending our country. So uh, this is the main uh, uh, power behind the, the uh, mentality and the motivation of the people. And that's why my soldiers, my people are very motivated. And secondly, uh, the equipment that we have now, the training that we have, are for the internal security of the present enemy situation is uh, uh, sufficient uh, to, to hit the enemy, uh, to defeat the enemy. But what happens in future, in the long term, uh, 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 an army with a lot of equipment will be based on an economy, the, the resources that you can afford. And of course, a country without army cannot survive. Afghanistan's Chief of the General Staff, General Sher Mohammed Karimi, talking to our reporter, Will Inglis. Today, the mastermind behind America's drone killing program appears before the Senate confirmation hearing. John Brennan is the man President Obama wants to be head of the CIA. This week, a memo from the US Justice Department on the justification of the use of drones was leaked. Professor Michael Stathis is a political scientist from the University of Southern Utah, Utah and joins us now. Professor Stathis, thanks for your time today. Uh, what's behind this document and its leaking well, the administration uh, has been under pressure for quite a while to uh, uh, release a, a number of documents that uh, uh, talk about the legality and the use of uh, drones, particularly um, with the possibility of using one against a, a, an American uh, who may be associated with uh, al-Qaeda. Uh, it has kind of uh, brooked a, uh, or broken a uh, firestorm this week, uh, the memo, of course, or the white paper, is uh, only part of the uh, official documentation. And, uh, of course, there have been uh, all kinds of questions this week from Congress uh, to release, or at least to Congress, the full document, which, in fact, was released by the Obama ad administration yesterday. But um, 
it, it is a strange coincidence because uh, this all happened on Monday, and of course today uh, we have the Senate confirmation hearings uh, for um, uh, CIA director, and the nominee is John O. Brennan. Uh, who is the former counterterrorism advisor? And uh, well, uh, how, how do I put it? Uh, uh, Christopher Lee described him as Doctor Drone. <laughs> yes, he did. Didn't he? Uh, he he has been very much associated with the use of uh, uh, of these weapons. Uh, Christopher, uh, just tell us what this uh, document actually revealed in terms of the circumstances under which a U.S. citizen abroad could be targeted by a drone. Fundamentally, well, sorry, Michael. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that uh, this this too has been questioned. Uh, the, the white paper uh, suggests that uh, it would be legal, uh, and it justified the case of uh, the killing of Anwar uh, uh, al uh, al if an informed high in Yemen. official uh, in Yemen, yes, uh, if an informed high level official decided that the target was a ranking figure in Al Qaeda, posed an imminent threat to the United States in a case where capture was not feasible and it had to be done according to the laws of uh, uh, of internet well international laws concerning war uh, war principles the key uh, uh, to this and the, the controversy comes with uh, uh, one uh, whether there is an imminent threat and two uh, who makes this decision? Who is this high-level uh, uh, official? Is it the president? Uh, would it be the head of the CIA? Would it be the secretary of defense? Christopher. John Brennan, uh, uh, until recently, uh, sat in a, a windowless, I just, somebody described it, windowless uh, basement under the White House. And every Tuesday, he drew up a list of people to be zapped. Um, that went to the president and um, for the president's signature. And everybody that was going to be attacked... Uh, had to be signed off by the president. The thing that interests me in particular, there is a judge in the United States, very important judge, called Colleen McMahon. And Colleen McMahon uh, has been drawn into this, and she says this. The executive branch, i.e. the White House, etc., appears to be able to say things and go ahead with things which are fundamentally against and the American constitution and principle and the way the Americans see themselves. And that is the basic difference. You know, you've got somebody who is a threat, like a, a commander in, in, of al-Qaeda, but there is a question, is that within the constitutional guidelines that Colin McMahon has to defend every single day as a judge? Uh, Michael Stathis, um the legality put to one side, is it true to say that Americans actually like the drone... Uh, program because it's working and no U.S. citizens are getting killed. Well, uh, the, the legal or the constitutional issue has kind of taken a back seat to the fact that uh, Obama has been fairly successful uh, with this, uh, and there is a preference to, well, how do we put this, uh, taking out uh, Al Qaeda uh, 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 as opposed to, uh, to to American lives now. Uh, Transparency has been a major issue here, uh, and this is what Congress is going to be getting at today. They are demanding that they have a uh, uh, a better view of uh, what is going on, when it is going on, and and who who is doing it. Now, there is one problem with the uh, the comments about legality that since uh, uh, well since 1993, there have been a series 
of, uh, of acts from uh, uh, Congress, including the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 96, the Patriot Act of 2001, the Homeland Security Act of 2002, uh, that have uh, effectively um, broadened presidential power to the point where it could be construed very easily that this is legal. Now, whether it is constitutional is another matter, and that, of course, would be left to the Supreme Court. All right. Professor Michael Stathis, I know this is a subject we'll be talking on very much in the future. Thanks for your time today. This is BFBS. Cigarette. Argentina's foreign minister has been in London this week calling for talks about the Falkland Islands. Mostly, though, he's been talking to the media. He was invited to meet William Hague, but declined because representatives of the Falklands government were also invited. He also refused to accept a letter which a member of the Falklands Legislative Assembly tried to hand him at the Palace of Westminster. Instead, Hector Timmerman did a round of interviews in which he claimed Argentina would have control of the islands within 20 years and then held a news conference at which he claimed there was no such thing as Falkland Islanders. As you know, there are very few inhabitants who are actually born in the islands. For us, they are Argentine citizens. The United Nations is very clear and self-determination applies to native people, not to the people that have been implanted. Well, BFBS reporter James Hurst was, were you at the news conference or weren't you? I was at the news conference. It, it had a bit of an air of farce to start with uh, because everybody was originally told it was at the embassy, so all well, the satellite trucks, reporters and cameras turned up only to be sent a mile and a half across London to the ambassador's residence. Uh, we weren't sure whether we were going to be allowed in because they hadn't confirmed with us. Uh, I saw the list, and now my Spanish is no good, but I did see the phrase no ingresa as, as part of the sentence next to British Forces News. There was lots of people asking around. We eventually Meaning got... don't let this guy in. That's what I think no ingresser <laughs> means. Anyway, we were let in. That's the important thing. Uh, but it was... Uh, half the room seemed to be blocked off either for VIPs or, or Latin American journalists. There were seats for about 20 British journalists at the back. So, frankly, it was packed at the back of the room. The most telling thing about this news conference is, as you heard there, it was conducted in Spanish with the translator speaking. But the ambassador and the foreign minister were both in English, correcting the English translations of the translator. It rather suggested to me this was aimed at the domestic audience. A couple of times, uh, the foreign minister, Mr Timman, actually started to answer in English and then corrected himself and moved into Spanish. So what do people from the Falklands Islands government actually have to say? Well, they're not terribly impressed. Uh, and uh, the, the, Perhaps the most important point that one made to me yesterday is they, they say the previous Argentine government described Falkland residents as part of the problem and therefore had to be part of the solution. And they suggest this is perhaps not going down brilliantly in the Argentine press as well. I think they see it as a lot of showboating. I asked Dick Saul, who's a Falklands Legislative Assembly member, what he makes of Mr Timmerman's claim that the islands will be under Argentine control within 20 years. Um, I, I think it probably makes a very good soundbite, but I think it doesn't have any real basis in reality, to be quite honest. And I think that's probably more for the domestic consumption than, uh, than any sort of real statement of fact. Mr Timmerman says there is no such thing as Falkland Islanders. <laughs> well, he's absolutely wrong. Uh, there are people in the Falklands who've lived there for nine generations. There are people who've lived there for less than that. Would there be anything wrong with William Hague sitting down and having conversations with Mr Timman without 
Falkland Islanders there as an opening gambit. There is no problem at all with normal bilateral discussions, but where there are issues that concern the Falklands, the British government is very, very clear. We have a right to self de- of self-determination. We have the right to have a say in our own political future. So it would be entirely wrong for the British government to go over the top of our heads and talk to Argentina about any issue to do with the Falklands. And, of course, the people of the Falklands get their say in a referendum in one month's time. James, thank you. The French town of Meribel has, for the seventh successive year, welcomed the top British forces alpine athletes to its pistes for the 62nd Inter-Services Championships. BFBS sports editor John Knighton is there and joins us now. Hello, John. Um, Why do winter sports have such prominence in military life? Well, for a variety of reasons, really, Kate. I mean, I, I think, uh, obviously, military training, uh, some of uh, the elements that they do in winter sports are clearly a military, a very important part of military training. But if you take the sporting aspects of well, getting, as well, getting the teams together, uh, having sort of a, a team competition uh, and building that sort of team spirit, really important. And, of course, this inter-services rivalry, which is so important, uh, being fostered at all levels within the forces, uh, the Army, Navy and Air Force all competing together. And, most importantly, they need some downtime. The pace of operations and training is so high these days, this is an ideal way for them to let off steam. So is it sport or adventure training? I think it's both, actually. If you take into account, uh, you know, the conditions that they sometimes have to work in out here and uh, the, the, the difficulties of uh, getting uh, things up and running when the weather turns as, as bad as it has been. We've had uh, 40 centimetres of snow over the last 24 hours, which has really tested the mettle of all the organisers and the competitors. But I think that it's a, a bit of uh, adventure training. It's certainly a lot of sport and it's certainly very valuable. And what is the benefit exactly, John? Well, I think, that, as I said, I think the benefit to uh, the competitors, obviously, is that competitive spirit that they that they need to foster. The military training aspect is vitally important, especially if you go to places like Rupolding, where they have uh, exercise rucksack every year, uh, which is the Nordic training, that's uh, biathlon, and uh, and also the Nordic skiing, which is uh, still regarded as a vital military skill and a very important skill for all soldiers, uh, sailors and airmen to have. All right, John Knighton in Maribel, thank you very much for your time today. Um, Christopher, the army places similar importance on sailing, doesn't it? Oh, almost every sport, but sailing, yeah. I mean, they got some. The, the army is actually out of the three services consistently probably the best sailors. They've got their most a huge budget. What the navy make of that? Then? Offshore, well, the navy gets seasick anyway. <laughs> um, but, but no, it is. And I tell you something, just a thought on where John Knighton was. The army don't go to Aviemore. They don't go cheap ski stuff, do they? Ooh, controversial. Eh? Mm. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for just as well this week. My thanks to all our guests and to our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Don't forget, you can join the debate on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Do join us again at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Kate Jebo, bye for now.